title the message today, A Dead Church. A Dead Church. Each of these sections start off with to a certain city, as we've discussed, and then he gets into the specific call for that city. And so today's message is structured around that same format, starting off with instruction for the city, or or introduction about the city of Sardis. So point number one, Sardis. You need to understand something about the city of Sardis. Now, I have two slides for this, so go to the first slide now. We have the city of Sardis. It is 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. So I put the arrow there so that you can see it. We start off with Ephesus. Ephesus was written to by John from Patmos, which is the island that is marked there out in the, the water. So you've got Ephesus, then Smyrna, then Pergamum, then fourth is Thyatira, then fifth is Sardis, and that's where we are today. So this is written to the city of Sardis, and you can go to the next slide. It is the former capital of the kingdom of Lydia. I wasn't really familiar with Lydia until studying for this, and I was like, what's Lydia? What You're the king. The, the capital of the kingdom. Well, Lydia was this kingdom that exists there. You can just leave it on that slide. Um, Lydia existed from about 1200 BC to 546 BC. So this is a long period of time that this kingdom has existed for, some 700 years. What this means is that this kingdom began halfway between the time of Moses and the Exodus, think 1446 BC, and King David, think around 1000 BC. So halfway in between that is 1200 BC. That's the time that this kingdom, the kingdom of Lydia, began. And this kingdom ended right around the time of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, who died in the year 538 BC. So the kingdom of Lydia existed from 1200 BC to 546 BC. Daniel died in 538 BC, eight years before the end of the Lydian kingdom. Now, specifically the kingdom of Lydia, in the year 546 under King Croesus, um, they were defeated. They were defeated by King, the great Persian king, King Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. King Croesus was known for his wealth, and he and his father were associated with the legendary King Midas, um, the Midas touch. You know, you touch a thing, it turns to gold. That's the idea, that King Croesus and his father were so wealthy that they had ancient poems and ancient literature written about their wealth. It was legendary wealth. The way that you and I would think of the gold of King Solomon, that was like the gold of King Croesus. Apparently, people in in prior decades, when they were more familiar with biblical and historical literature, you could say, well, yeah, it's as rich as King Croesus, and that would mean something to people. But I don't think today that means anything to anybody. So think of it as, as rich as King Solomon. King Croesus reigned for 40 years, and he was the most wealthy king in the world at the time. There was a, a famous river that ran right through. Um, you can't see it because this map's too far away, but there's a river that goes right through that region, and that river had an enormous amount of gold and silver in that river that would kind of flow down from some um, reserves or wh- wherever it came from up in the mountains. Um, king Cyrus sieged the city 
of Sardis, because Sardis is the capital city, and Sardis is laid out in kind of an upper city and lower city. The upper city is on a mountain, lower city is in a valley. Um, King Cyrus waged war on the city of Sardis, and when he attacked Sardis, um, he sent in, it's kind of weird, like he was outnumbered two to one. I believe it was 50,000 versus 100,000. And the um, Sardis and Lydian army was again, twice the size, very, very large. But King Cyrus sent in, according to historians, he sent his army of um, camels. And apparently horses are afraid of camels. So he did this, and these camels scattered, or the horses scattered, and they were terrified of the camels. And so it caused this massive chaos on the battlefield, leading the soldiers, the Lydian army, to retreat And they get to Sardis, and the lower part of the city was easily attacked and easily conquered. So they retreat up to the upper city, which is like a castle fortress, some 1,500 feet above the valley below. So imagine you've seen like those those mountains out west where you have, like in the U.S. here, you've got just flatlands and then this like tall mountain just in the middle of nothing. Something like that. That's the idea that of the, the layout of this upper city of Cyrus, of, of Sardis. So King Cyrus then sieges the city of Sardis for two weeks and eventually conquered it at night after one of his soldiers who was watching observed one of the guards of Sardis drop his helmet. So imagine with me, like there's a laptop perched on the ledge there. Imagine that just like falls over but it's a helmet. And you're like, oh no, I dropped my helmet. So this soldier's watching and he sees this soldier's helmet go tumbling down 1,500 feet, like bouncing down the mountain. And then the soldier kind of peers down and then come, he, he just sort of appears through a hole in the wall, through a hole in the mountain and like climbs down. So this soldier for King Sar- Cyrus watches all this take place. He tells his friends, hey, I found a way in. And so he retraces those steps with a band of soldiers. And in the middle of the night, he and a a group of Cyrus's soldiers returned, copied the path they observed, sneaked into the city, and captured it while the city was fast asleep. The city was so confident that they would not be sieged because of how these are basically 1,500-foot mountain faces, sheer, straight up. They were so confident that they would not be conquered. They didn't even have a guard watching at night. So that's what happened. Now this conquering, this this fall of Sardis, which is a historical thing, Herodotus is the name of the historian who wrote extensively about it. If you want to read from him, you can Google it and you'll find his, his words where he describes it. This not only happened in 546, which it did, with the Persian army, Cyrus the Great, but it also happened one to 200 years prior in the 7th century, and it ended up happening two more times later on for a total of four times that I can find recorded that the city fell, that the city was conquered repeatedly over and over and over again. So that's the background, the background of the city of Sardis. So that's point number one. Point number two now, Looking at our text today, God sees the dead church. I'll give you the points now so you can write them down. Point two, God sees the dead church. Point three, God revives the dying church. And point four, God remembers 
the remnant. So God sees the dead church, God revives the dying church, and God remembers the the remnant. Point two, God sees the dead church. This is verse one. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I've already addressed the seven spirits of God in earlier messages. It's a a phrase that's recurring here in chapter 3, as well as the seven stars. God holds the seven stars in his hand. The stars are the messengers. The stars are the angelos, or the messengers, or the, the pastors of these churches. So the words of him who has the spirits, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. God sees the dead church. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So, first subpoint: God knows your works. Secondly, God knows your reputation, and God knows your true spiritual condition. This is a church that has the reputation of being alive. If you looked at them at first glance, you wouldn't be seeing a dead church visibly. Uh, I'm from Florida. I'm from rural Florida. And in rural Florida, there's a lot of um, land. There's a lot of yards. There's a lot of property. And so you don't just have, you don't have apartment buildings the way you do up here. So you have a house with a yard. And in a lot of yards, you will see old dead cars. You will see cars that are up on blocks. You will see cars with no wheels on them. You will see vehicles that are rusted over. You look at that and you know, that's a dead car. That car doesn't work. You can tell that at first glance, but that's not what this is talking about. This church did not look dead from the outside. It didn't look like those cars. Rather, it would look like the new cars, the shiny, nice-looking cars in a car lot, or the cars that are driving down the street. You see that car, and you're like, oh, that's a good car. It's not dead. It works. It runs. It functions. It looks great. I would want to buy or drive or ride in a car like that. That's, That's... what the church at Sardis was like. It looked good on the outside. It wasn't that church you walk in and there's three people there. They're just barely hanging on. It's not that. This is a church where everything looks good. It looks great. There's a lot of people there. There's a pastor. There's a great worship team. There's nice facilities. I know your works and I know your reputation. I know you look like you're alive, but you're not. God knows their works and God knows their reputation. He not only knows what they're truly doing, he knows what people say about them and they have this reputation. Their strong reputation, that they're a vibrant church. They're a church where it's happening. That's a great place to go to. The word in the community, oh, you go to that church, you go to the church at Sardis, that's a great church. It's, it's alive, there's a lot of people. It should be a warning to us. It should be a cause for concern to, to think that a church can be thought of in the city, in the community. It can be thought well of. It can be thought positively by the locals. It can be thought of as alive or vibrant. But God would regard it as a dead church. Beyond that, God knows your true spiritual condition. God knows your true spiritual condition. You have your look on the outside. We all know it. We all do it. You put on nice clothes on Sunday so that people will look at you and they will think, oh, they've got it together. Even though you might be crying yourself to sleep the rest of the week. God knows the reality of our true spiritual condition. 
And so it is with a church. It has been said that our reputation is who people think we are, but our character is who we really are. It is not enough to look good. What you look like is irrelevant. If under the hood of this car is a broken, corrupted, non-functioning engine, it doesn't matter how nice the paint job is. It's not enough to look good. It's not enough to say, well, we have a lot of people in the pews. A church can be a dead church and still have a lot of people sitting in the seats. It's not enough to have a lot of money in the budget. Believe it or not, there are churches with lots and lots of money that don't preach the gospel. That might be news to some of you, but that is a thing. Number three, it's not enough to have a lot of excitement in the air. There are churches that advertise that their churches are exciting. You're invited to the exciting whatever church. It's more of a Florida thing, but they do that in other places. The fact that there's a lot of energy in the room doesn't mean that the church is alive. And the last point that I've got here, I could have come up with many, but the fourth one is it's not enough to have a lot of knowledge in your heads. It's not enough to just know a lot of things. That doesn't make you a living church. You can be a dead church with a lot of facts, a lot of Bible trivia, a lot of knowledge, a lot of history, a lot of theology, a lot of degrees, a lot of seminary training. It's not enough to look good. And you can look good in all different kinds of ways. You can look good by having a big crowd. You can look good financially, look good on paper. Hey, look, they've got money, they're stable. Or you can look good intellectually, because look at, look at my resume, look at my CV. I've got the degrees. That's not enough. Beyond that, God's ultimate concern is God is not truly concerned with your cultural popularity. And he says, you, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. What people think you are, people might think that you're alive. But that's not enough. Your cultural popularity, your popularity in the city is not enough. Further, your image or your reputation in the religious community is not enough. It's not just that he knows about them and that the people know about them. It's that spiritually they're thought of by the other religious folks as that's a good place. So you could be a pastor and go to pastor's meetings in New York City and still have a church that God looks at and says, your church has the reputation of being alive and other pastors think you're alive. Other pastors think your church is doing great, but it's not. And beyond that, thirdly, God is not concerned with your activity, your busyness. You might have a full schedule. You might have a lot of things going on, but that doesn't mean that you're alive. That does not satisfy God's concern for you and your church. But here's what God's concern is. See, God's not concerned with your popularity or your image or your activity, but God's concern is this. Are you really alive? 
Now, when we say alive, what we mean is, are you born again? Are you saved? Is this a Christian church? Is this a Christian community, a body of believers in Jesus Christ? That's his concern. Not how nice the facilities are, as great as nice facilities are. And they are nice. But God's concern is not with those things, and he's not concerned with what people think of you. He's concerned with, are you alive? Have you been raised from the dead? Have you been born again? Do you have the Spirit of God within you individually? That's God's concern. Beyond that, it's not just the church as a whole. The individuals within the church also matter, but also the preachers matter. Did you know that you can be unconverted and be a pastor? That's a thing. It happens. It happens in New York City. And do you know where a dead church, how a dead church can grow in its deadness and have a lot of dead people coming to the church and have a lot of money from dead people coming in to pay for it? Well, if you have a spiritually dead pastor, then that's what happens. Now, there's a whole history of this movement, but uh, if you want a great book on this, look up the book called Revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray. Uh, a couple 150 years ago, there was a guy named Charles Finney, and Charles Finney figured out a way to artificially create the work of God. So he developed a thing he called New Measures. So he's looking at this church scene in upstate New York, and he's like, hey, these churches are dead. How can we make them alive? Oh, well, if we do this, then it will lead to the next result. So he developed these things, which he called new measures, which were designed to create the work of God, to create a movement of the Spirit of God. And he developed these things that would then become popularized and mainstream in the generations to come. Um, Some of his new measures were called, uh, like, the altar call. And having like some really like em- emotive music playing during the end of the service. And oh, another way you can get people to, because you want people to respond to your message, not just to sit there like they're stone. So the way you get people to respond to your message is you want to visibly see that they're responding. So at the end of your sermon, you ask for a raise of hands. Like raise your hand if you want to get saved today. Okay, I see that. I see that hand. Um, if you really mean it, now that look at me. Sort of like secret Hitler, wake up if you're whatever. So I, so you would just raise your hand now, great. If your hand is raised, now look at me. Okay, so now you're trapped, you're stuck because you made eye contact. And now I know that you, that you made eye contact with me. So now if you really, really mean it, now stand up. So now everybody else's eyes are closed, but you have this little social dynamic going on between you and the preacher and the people sitting immediately next to you because they know that you stood up. And now then the preacher can say, all right, if you're really, really serious, now step out of your seat and come up to the front. All the while, the musicians are playing a song called Just As I Am and playing a million verses of it, just over and over and over again on on repeat. It's a great song. I love the song. But the way it's been used is to generate this response. Also, 
the initial question of, well, do you raise your hand if you want to get saved? That might be too much. So you can change it to something less, like something that everybody in their right mind would say, yeah, I want that. Like, raise your hand if you want to grow. Raise your hand if you want to be more godly. Raise your hand if you love your mom. You know, it's basic stuff to manipulate people into raising their hand in order, in order to get them to step out of their seat, to come to the front so that you can count numbers as a preacher. Because your success and your funding and your, your donor base are all dependent and contingent upon you getting these results. And the way you get the results is, well, you counted them. You saw the hands, the heads, the number of people who came weeping to the front of the room, crying, saying, yes, I want whatever, whatever the thing may be. That all was started by Charles Finney. Charles Finney developed it. He had the, the, the stuff I described to you is the modern adaptation of it, but he had a thing called the anxious bench. The anxious bench was the front row in the front. He developed, they called sawdust trails. It was the walkways um, because they were having so many people come up to the front. They would put sawdust on the, the walkway because these were tent meetings and the paths were getting all muddy because he's making everybody in the church come up and down the front. So you're walking the sawdust trail to come down to the altar, to come to the front, to sit in the anxious bench, and you're waiting for an emotional experience. And if you weren't having an emotional enough experience, because you couldn't get saved until you felt like you needed to be saved. It wasn't enough just to believe. You had to have a crisis experience. So what they would do is they would artificially create some tears. So you want to cry, but you're not crying enough. Well, let me sit next to you and literally beat you on the back. That really happened. That was part of their thing. Like, okay, well, we'll, we'll make you cry. So Charles Finney just developed these ways. There's much, much more that you can read about in, in that book, Revival and Revivalism, The Making and Marring of Modern Evangelicalism. Uh, most Reformed people point back to Charles Finney as the one who's at fault for everything that's wrong with the church today. The modern followers of Finney are people who follow and develop the thing called the church marketing movement. So the church marketing movement was this idea like, oh, hey, people might not like your church. Well, you can change your church. People don't like Jesus, you change Jesus, change your doctrine. Um, so you literally would go, it was developed by a church called Willow Creek out in the Chicago area. So they did surveys of the community. So they send out people to ask people, what type of church do you want? The modern version of it, the 2020 SBC version, is called a needs assessment. So you go into the community and you take a survey called a needs assessment and you ask people, what type of church would you attend? Okay, we'll give you that type of church. But you're building your church, as Paul Washer says, you're building your church on the backs of unconverted church members. So this week, I listened to a church planning podcast online. And in that podcast, they had this glowing story about how they had started a church based on the feedback and the opinions of this one person who had a whole bunch of degrees, a very influential, very wealthy, successful person who was not a Christian, but said she would go to a church if it wasn't so churchy. If it didn't feel like a church, she would go. If it didn't have, you know, preaching and teaching and stuff, then she would, she would go to it. So they changed literally everything in the church and made her be the authority. She's the one calling the shots. It's not directly that way, but that's the meaning of it. What she wants is what we're building the church around. And then they're so ecstatic and, and happy to share that she ended up getting saved and then look at the, the results of all this. Now, if you've read your Bible much, you know that whether or not she is saved 
well, number one, that's not the reason why you do stuff. We're not driven by pragmatism. We're driven by the word of God. Secondly, you also know there is such thing as a false convert. So the fact that in the moment she's making a profession of faith doesn't necessarily mean that she's saved. Think of the four soils. The parable that Jesus told. So there are people who look like they're, they become Christian, but they're not. They're just converting for outward reasons or for social reasons. So this church marketing movement technique, these techniques are developed in order to create the appearance of life. And the founders of the church planning organization here in New York City that plants every church in New York, in their videos, by their own admission, they went to Willow Creek 20, 30 years ago, and they learned how to successfully plant churches. So that's the reason why if you're a church planner and you're going through the church planning school here in New York, they will teach you all these tricks of the trade. How to make a church look alive when it's not. How to draw a crowd of non-believers. How to draw people to get them to come. It's just straight out of business school. You don't need Jesus to do that. You don't need Jesus to draw a crowd according to a certain interest. Like right now, today, there's going to be 15 cities across America where thousands, tens of thousands of people gather to watch two different baseball teams compete. And they're gathering together not because of Christ, but because of their shared interest in the two opposing teams. And you can do that same thing with a bowling league. You can do that with a a music group or a chess club. And that's what pastors have decided they can do. They can get people to gather for a common cause, such as renewing the city. Or here in New York, left-wing politics. So if we build our church on those things, and that's what you get on Sunday morning, then you can draw a crowd. And that's what has been done. And that's the reason why it's been difficult for many of you to find a church for the last two years. So I want to say God, point number two, God sees. God sees the dead church. And God's concern is not with your activity or your cultural popularity or your image at the pastor's meetings or your busyness or how much activity you're doing, even how many people are in the pews or how much money's in the budget or how much excitement is in the room or even the knowledge in your heads. He's concerned with this question. Are you truly alive? Are you actually Christians? And by that, we don't mean do you check some boxes? We mean, do, do you know Christ? Have you been born again? Are you trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ to forgive you of all of your sins as your only hope in life and in death? And if you were to stand before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? And you would say, well, you shouldn't. I don't deserve it. But Jesus lived and died for me. And he rose again on the third day. That's what a Christian says. That's the gospel. That's the Christian answer. So point two, God sees the dead church. Point three, God revives the dying church. There's some differences in, the, in this text between, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So he sees the dead church. But then there are these people that are not dead yet, but they're dying. Look at verse two and three. 
wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. The reality is that in most every church, no matter how outwardly alive but inwardly dead, in most every gathering of people in a church, there are some there who are genuinely born again. So in the midst of that corrupt church where the gospel is not really preached, let's say there's a hundred people in that type of church, there might, there probably are a couple of people who are holdouts, who've been there for decades. Maybe they're founding members of the church. Then the church went astray. They got two or three bad pastors in a row. And these folks are founding members of the church. They, they paid the money to buy the building or build the institution. And they're not leaving. But they're surrounded by corpses everywhere. It's not surprising when someone tells me, oh yeah, I'm a true Christian. But I go to, and then they name a church that doesn't preach the gospel. And then they tell me this long story of the decline and the decay of that church, even if it still has a lot of people going to it. So for you, if that's you, if you're a person who has been a part of a church that you recognize might have a lot of activity and a lot of people attending it, but it's, it's actually dead, even though it looks alive, but you're concerned and you're aware of that and you believe the true gospel, this next part is for you. God is speaking to the one who is in the dead church, but is actually alive, but is dying. And he says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. This is why I've said revives. God revives the dying church. I talked earlier about Charles Finney and the New Measures. This was all part of, I think, the third, second, third great awakening. So an awakening or a revival is when people are revived. They come back to life. They're awakened. They're starting to fall asleep like a warm church auditorium and you're drifting off. He says, wake up. Strengthen what remains. There's a few people in this type of church and he says, okay, you need to become aware of this. You need to wake up to this reality and then you need to strengthen yourselves. If your group is four, if there's four of you in a church that's dying, wake up to that reality. Strengthen yourselves, equip yourselves, gird up the loins of your mind. Do your spiritual weightlifting. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember that what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Verse three is key here. Remember then what you have received and heard. So we've got corrupt churches. Corrupt churches need reformation. They need to be turned in the most basic level. A dead church needs to be resurrected but a dying church needs revival. 
A dying church needs a great awakening. And the way to get that, the way to revive your church, is first off, number one, by remembering. It's remember. Look in verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. His first instruction towards these believers, true believers in the midst of dead people everywhere, is to remember Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. His instruction is not to reconstruct. In order to get revival, your church doesn't need to physically renovate the sanctuary. To have a revival in your church, your church does not need to upgrade the lighting system in your church or the soundboard. To resurrect your church, to revive your church, you do not need to hire a bunch of unsaved musicians to come and lead your church in the worship of God. To revive your church, you do not need to get a better piano. It's not about rebuilding a facility to revive your church. Your church doesn't need to hire a guest preacher to come and do a week of revival meetings to revive your church. Your church doesn't need to run a bunch of new programs to revive your church. You don't need to have a VBS to revive your church. A lot of people, a lot of churches think, oh, if only we can get some families in here, and the way we'll get some families is we're going to do a VBS. And we don't have any young vacation Bible school, for people who don't know. It's a summertime thing where you put on like some free daycare and give away lots of candy and juice boxes to the children, and you sing lots of fun songs, and you get... The, the smart parents in your community know they can get a week of free daycare for their kid at that church. And the next week, because the churches who are intelligent, they will coordinate their VBSs with all the other churches who have VBS so that they know they're not trying to do their VBS at the same time as everybody else's church. So they'll stagger them throughout the summer so that you as parents can send your kids to each of the different VBSs throughout your community and not have to pay for childcare for weeks on end. And the pastors who are doing this think that this is the way to revive their church, to get the young people, to get the families to come to their church if their VBS is only great enough. So, in Bible Belt type places, churches will go all out for VBS. I've, church, I've heard of churches putting on rodeos, like literally bringing in like fences in the parking lot, bringing in thousands of pounds of dirt, building a rodeo with like bull riding and calf roping, and the pastor's gonna, the pastor's gonna wrestle a, a calf, or the pastor's gonna ride a bull, or whatever. They're doing like crazy things to, it's hilarious, it's great, lots of fun, but you can do a rodeo with no spiritual effect whatsoever. You can get a bunch of really cool bounce houses. You can have bubble machines. You can bring in thousands of pounds of artificially made snow and have snowball fights. It's big business in Florida. They don't have snow down there. And if your VBS is cooler than anybody else's VBS, then those kids are going to go home and tell their parents, and their parents will think it's so cool. And if you do like family fun day and pictures, then they're going to put it on their fridge, and they'll remember, and they want to come back to your church. And a lot of pastors think that that's the way to revive their church. That's not the way to revive your church. That's not what Jesus says to the church in Sardis. Your church doesn't need to develop new measures in the style of Charles Finney or Bill Hybels. 
church doesn't need to abandon preaching and exchange it for skits and entertainment. It doesn't need to get rid of a 40-minute sermon and turn it into a 12-minute talk. The instruction is not to reconstruct in order to get revival. It's also not to deconstruct to get revival. You don't need to redefine the church in order to have a revived church. The way to revive your church is not to remove all the offensive parts of your religion, not to shave down your doctrinal statement, to get rid of everything that someone might possibly object to or ditch it all together. There's a reason why a lot of churches in New York don't have doctrinal statements on their websites. Or if they do, it's the Apostles' Creed only because they don't want to take a stand on justification by faith alone. Inerrancy, is the Bible true or not? What is marriage? Any of these types of issues, they want to say, yeah, we don't really care about those things. Not a big deal here. Come as you are. Don't get me wrong, you can come as you are. That's how you come to Christ, as you are. You don't have to clean up your act before you come to Christ. But to belong, to be a member, you have to come to Christ. So that's the reason why the founders of the church marketing movement coined terms like belong before you believe, which is an unbiblical phrase. You don't belong if you don't believe. You're a guest. You're a guest. And we're, we're glad that you're a guest. We're thrilled that you're a guest. But we're not going to put your name on your seat. You've got to be born again. You must believe. And then you will find that you belong. So in order to have revival, you don't deconstruct your faith. You don't deconstruct Christianity. You don't reinvent or reimagine or even revoice the Christian religion in order to have a revived church. Rather, the way to revival is to return to what a guy like um, J.C. Ryle called the old paths. Return to the old paths. Look in verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. There is a faith once for all delivered to the saints. There is a common core of Christian religion that is explained to us in the Bible. There is a clear gospel message taught. Return to the old paths. Return to, number one, an unwavering proclamation of the gospel. A lot of pastors don't preach the gospel. A lot of pastors who don't preach the gospel used to preach the gospel, and they forgot that they stopped preaching the gospel. So they start assuming the gospel. They start assuming that everybody believes it. and Everyone's on the same page. Well, why? Well, because I'm still here. They're still here. The building's still here. We're all still doing the same thing. So nothing has changed. But there's a drift. Um, I was once traveling from uh, New York to somewhere, and I made a pit stop at my uncle's house in uh, Pennsylvania. My aunt and uncle... I love them. I don't see them very often. It's like once every five or 20 years. And um, they've lived in the same house. They've been married for like 40 years. They have no kids. They've got some horses and a few cats. And I stopped in their house. They've lived there their whole married life. And um, I was using the restroom, washed my hands. I turned to dry my hands on the towel. And I realized like this is a towel that they received as a wedding present. It is what they call a threadbare towel. It's as thin as a sheet, like the sheets you would put on a bed, but it used to be a fluffy towel. 
And that's what happens when you wash the same towel constantly for 40 years. That's why your lint filter needs to be cleaned out because your towels are the main things feeding your lint filter. And here's the kicker. What I thought about when I was drying my hands, I thought, oh, this is a sermon illustration of spiritual drift. (laughs) Because you don't notice it. When you're washing your towel week after week after week, you don't notice that that towel is getting thinner and thinner and thinner. And that's what happens to a lot of preachers. They don't realize that they're drifting more and more and more and more and more. And then eventually something happens. Maybe they listen to another message or some friend grabs them by the ears and corrects them and says, hey, you're not preaching the gospel. But then they compare, like the towel, they hold up a fresh new towel and this old tattered towel and realize, whoa, how far we have fallen. So the call that God gives to his church is to return to an unwavering proclamation of the gospel first. Second, a clear response to the gospel. It's found there in the text. He says, repent. The call of the gospel is to repent and believe. Believe and repent. These words are used interchangeably in the New Testament. Sometimes it says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. Sometimes it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Sometimes Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. But the reality is that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin, and it's a changing of the mind. And that changing of the mind, when it truly happens, it does lead to a change of life. But the change of life is not what saves you. It's faith in Christ. It is Christ, the objective work of Christ, him living, dying, and rising again on the third day. It's Christ who saves. And you believe that and you receive it by faith. And your repentance is a turning from your sin and yourself. Your righteousness, your your own way of doing things, your own way of believing and hoping. And saying, you know what? Jesus is my only hope. So return to the old paths. Number one, the unwavering proclamation of the gospel. Number two, the clear response of the gospel. You'd be surprised at how many pastors have lost sight what the response of the gospel is. Number three, it's not just the verbal proclamation of the gospel, though that is important. It also must hit the ground in a local community of believers in the local church. So you must return to the simple mission of the church. Because you can get so distracted by all those things that I've unpacked for you. The, the extensive programming, programming is not necessarily bad, but it can become a distraction. The simple mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit to the glory of God the Father. Number four, return to the regenerate body of Christ. What is the church? See, this is a big part of why pastors and church planters have gotten so confused and why there's an entire industry built around church planting because they're just constantly reinventing and reimagining and developing new new things every year. The uh, Exponential Church Planting Conference, like there's a whole bunch of new books that are published every year on new ways to reach people. Now there's a big thing about the post-COVID church, and the post-COVID church is much different than the pre-COVID church, and you have to have new ways to think about the church in the post-COVID climate. 
But I'm here to tell you that the body of Christ is still what the body of Christ has always been, and that is a believing body. People who are born again, people who have been united with Christ. You have the visible body of Christ, but there is the true body of Christ, which are Christians. This is why we don't hire unsaved Broadway performers to lead us in music. Almost every other church in New York City does. Well into the 90% anyway, because that's what they teach them at the church planning school here in New York. Because they don't have an idea that the church is Christians, they have the idea that the church is a mixed multitude. So it's supposed to have believers and unbelievers, and people might catch it by osmosis if they happen to be in your church enough. And it makes no difference if they're leading the people of God in the worship of God. They can have an actor up there, it's fine. And by actor, I don't mean a person whose job is to be an actor. I mean someone who's acting like they're a Christian. So you've got to return to the regenerate body of Christ. This is why in membership interviews, question number one is tell me how you got saved. Question number one is not show me your W-2. Question number one is not tell me how, how, you, how much you make or how much you're going to give. It's tell me, are you saved? And then you tell me that, and then I'm still listening like, well, that may or may not be true, but can you tell me what the gospel is? Let's get this from experience, which is important, but get it down to the objective. From subjective to objective, what is the work of Christ? How is a person saved? How could I be saved if you were to witness to me on the street? And in that, that, that's question two, how could I be saved? The answer I'm looking for is a defined answer, and that is, believe the gospel. Okay, well, what's the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for your sins. So you've got to return to these old paths. Return, keep the things that you have learned and received and heard. And then beyond that, it's wash, rinse, repeat. Just keep doing that. In membership class this morning, we were talking about my church planning mentor who's a missionary in the Middle East. And um, I refer to him typically as my former mentor because we're not continuing to do these monthly calls because we kind of hit a point where I said, okay, what's next? And he said, just keep doing what you're doing. You just keep doing the same cycle that I just laid out to you right now. You keep doing that until Jesus comes back. And that's the way a church functions. That's the life and health of a church You're not reinventing or reimagining or looking for more. So the way to revival is to return to these old paths. This is all point three, that God revives a dying church. Point four, our last point, God remembers the remnant. Verses four and five. God remembers the remnant. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, and they are worthy. The ones who conquer will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In these verses, there are four things described. 
the image of robes, the language of worthy, the book of life, and the intercession of Christ. Each of these could be their own sermon. They could be their own series of sermons. But first, you have the image of robes. Verse 4. You have still a few, few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. This language of robes and white robes is a theme throughout Scripture, but I believe this is a reference um, to Zechariah 3. Zechariah 3, 1 through, well, we'll read a couple verses. Verse 1 says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. This is Zechariah speaking, telling of his vision that God showed him. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to said. To those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. This image of exchanging the robes is a picture of justification. It is a picture of this great exchange where God takes our sins and our record and our guilt and replaces them with the righteousness and the innocence and the perfect perfection and the holiness and the merit of Jesus Christ. And that's what is referred to here throughout the book of Revelation and multiple other places in the Bible when it speaks of white robes. These are not robes that you make yourself clean. You're receiving them, and the way you're receiving it is by believing the gospel, which we've already described to you. So we have first the image of robes, this reference to the great exchange, to justification by faith alone. Secondly, the language of worthy, being considered worthy. These who are in white robes are worthy. There's one other person who's called worthy in the book of Revelation. It's Jesus. This is the only place that Christians are called worthy. How are you worthy? How are you worthy of the white robes or of receiving honor and and glory from God? Well, it's because you're in his robes. In ancient times, you had to be, and even modern times, you have to be wearing a certain attire in order to enter certain places. Fancy restaurants in New York, fancy restaurants anywhere, they'll say you have to have a certain attire in order to enter. It was like that only much more in ancient times. You had to put on the king's garments in order to enter into his presence. And when you did, it didn't matter what you had on before you put on those robes. Now that you have his robes on, you can come in. It is that reality that makes you worthy. It's not your actions, it's the actions of Christ that makes you worthy. Thirdly, talk for a moment about the book of life. Verse uh, 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian because God 
in part. There's a lot of reasons you're a Christian if you're a Christian. But if you're a Christian, ultimately, it's because God wrote your name in the book of life, and he wrote your name in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And because of that, your name cannot be removed from the book of life. So take confidence in Christ as your Savior. Take confidence in resting and trusting in him. If today your hope is found in Jesus, know that your name is in the book of life and it will never be blotted out. Your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven will never be removed because you didn't pay your taxes as they did in ancient times. If you got your wires crossed with the authorities, they might say, sorry, you're not a citizen here anymore. We've blot your name out of the book of the records for this city. But that will never happen to one of Christ's own and then the fourth one, fourth point to point out is the intercession of Christ. Never blot his name out of the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. What's happening right now? Right now, Sunday, April 10th, 2022, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for his people. So even though you have sinned, even though you probably had a bad week or a bad day yesterday, or maybe a bad morning today, Perhaps you thought 10 sinful thoughts during the sermon. Jesus confesses your name before the Father. He looks at the Father and he says, that one's mine. There's no wrath for them because I've paid their price. I lived for them. I died for them. And I rose again for them. And I'm still here seated at the right hand of the Father. And I'm not going anywhere. That little one, that's mine. the intercession of Christ. He confesses us before the Father. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what about you? Do you have an ear to hear? Do you recognize this? Do you see this? Are you in the position of, of a cynic or skeptic saying, I don't know about that? Cry out to God and ask him to give you ears to hear. Ask him to give you new life. Ask him to give you repentance and faith that you would believe. Tell it to Jesus. Tell him what you're experiencing. Tell him what you're feeling. Tell him how you're processing and say, God, I want to be saved. I want to personally experience this personal revival. I want to be born again. Cry, cry out to God. He says, none who look to him will ever be turned away. None will ever be put to shame. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message to the church at Sardis. I pray that you would apply it to the hearts of your people, that you would save those who are not saved, that you would strengthen those who need strengthening, that we would all be helped and built up by the grace of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.